We're living in a moment right now where we are just mesmerized by this idea of superheroes. There's movies coming out all summer long involving heroes. And whether you're a DC fan, a Marvel fan, you're a fan of both, or you hate superheroes altogether, you can recognize the, the mesmerizing, captivating nature of them at this moment in our culture. But what's interesting is that it isn't just a new phenomenon that we're fascinated with this idea of powers and superpowers. The, the idea of power goes back to the beginning of humanity. We're entranced by this idea that, that we could have power and we could use power. And we've created language around it. We call people who, who have to have power, we call them power hungry. People who hold on to power and cling to it, we call them power mongers. We talk about people who can use power and then just lay it down, we call them humble. And people who use power on behalf of other people, we call them heroes. And even back into our nation's history, we have stories involving people who used power. One story that I found this week involves this guy, George Washington, who we're celebrating the work that he did this week in our Independence Day. George Washington led the Continental Army that went up against the British Army after the Declaration of Independence. And after George Washington kicked Cornwallis's butt in the Battle of Yorktown that we're celebrating this week. And if you're a Brit in the house, I'm sorry, but we won. <laughs> King George is back in, back in uh, England trying to make sense of what happened. And he had this guy working for him. His name was Benjamin West. Benjamin West was a painter. And George was talking about the other George from across the pond. And he said to West, hey, what's Washington going to do now? Now that he's beaten the most powerful empire on earth, what is he going to do? Is he going to become king? Is he going to stay general? And West goes, no, he's just going to go back to being George. He's going to go back to Mount Vernon. He's going to go back to where he lives. He's going to go back to his normal life. And King George couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe that he would have all this power, all of this accomplishment, all of this opportunity, and he would lay it down and walk away. And King George said about our George, George Washington, he said that act placed him in a light the most distinguished man of any man living and the greatest character of the age. Can you imagine that? You've conquered the greatest empire on earth. You're the most powerful man in this new nation. And you lay it all down. And you walk away. And George said that makes him the greatest character of the age, that he can have that kind of relationship to power. That statement reminded me of one of the best sermons I've ever heard. I listen to a lot of sermons as a pastor, and some stick with you, and some go in one ear and out the other. And hopefully this sermon you're going to hear today is the first and not the second. But one of the best sermons I heard involved a question, and it was given by this guy named Andy Stanley at a conference I attended about 10 years ago. And Stanley asked this question. He said, what do you do when you realize that you're the most powerful person in the room? What do you do when you realize that you're the most powerful person in the room? Maybe you've had a moment like that when you became a boss for the first time or you became a manager for the first time and everybody in the room looked at you and said, okay, what are we going to do? I can remember that moment when it happened for me. I was in a room and that we had a team and they didn't agree and everybody looked at me and said, okay, Scott, you make the decision. You're the leader. You're in charge. What are we going to do? This weekend with me and my kids, it's okay. I'm the most powerful person in the room. I don't feel like it. They don't think so, but I am. Okay, what am I going to do now that I'm the most powerful person in the room? 
And maybe you'll have that moment. And so I'm not going to preach Andy Stanley's sermon. That's called plagiarism. But I am going to rip off that question and turn it into our big question this morning. And so in your handout, I encourage you to fill out these blanks. This is our big question for today. What do you do when you realize that you have power? What do you do when you realize that you have power? Because I believe that you have power today, whether you believe it or not, whether you have as much power as you would like to have or not, or whether you have as much power as you used to have or not, we all have power. And today we're going to look at some stories of three people who each realized they had power and they had a response to make. Now today we're going to dive back into the story of Esther. The last two weeks we've been in Daniel. We're going back into Esther. And so if you were here on June 10th, we introduced Esther's story. And we said that Esther's book that has her name is a story about how God is always at work, even when he seems hidden and we are compromised. The story of Esther doesn't involve ever a moment where God's name is mentioned. There's never a time when someone prays. God seems to be a hidden character in the story. And the heroes in the book, they're compromised people. They're not living a life that's faithful or devoted to God. And they remind us in some ways of our lives and the people around us. And yet God chooses to use them. We said that the story of Esther is far more like an episode of Game of Thrones than it is the VeggieTale movies we've watched. That it includes sex and violence and dark themes. And if it was made into a modern movie today, most of you wouldn't take your kids because it would be too gory and too graphic. It's a rough book. And we said that these characters, Esther and Mordecai, are compromised because they have blind spots. And that's where we connect. That we have blind spots in our lives. Things that we can't see. Places that we don't recognize where we're compromised. And it's often in those blind spots that we get in danger. Just like in our car when we have blind spots that we don't turn around and look at. That those places include danger for us. And so today we're going to be in the book of Esther chapter 3. So if you have a Bible... I'd encourage you to open to Esther chapter 3. If you've got a digital Bible, just scroll down. You'll find Esther's name eventually. If you have a physical Bible open to the middle, you'll hit Psalms. Go towards the front, and you'll pass Job, and then you'll end up in Esther. And we're going to be in Esther 3 and 4 today. And beginning in Esther chapter 3, verse 1, we meet our first character we'll look at today. It says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set him and his throne above all the officials who were with him. So if you remember the first weekend we talked about Esther, it begins the story with the king having this collection of advisors, this team of advisors. But here he goes from all of the officials to just one advisor, Haman having all the power. In verse 2, it says, And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate, they bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, he would not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress? Why do you break the king's command? And then they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. Every day he wouldn't bow down. He kept going like this. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them that he was a Jew. This morning I'm going to share with you three takeaways that are lessons for us and three responses that we see in these characters. And the first takeaway is this, that God awakens compromised people and he invites them into a story. 
The story of Mordecai that we explore in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 is a story about how we see for the very first time Mordecai awakening and stepping into God's story because up until now, no one knew that Mordecai was a Jew. They didn't know because he didn't, told, didn't tell them and they didn't know because there was no evidence from his life. Last week, we talked about Daniel's life, and we said that sometimes people around us don't know that we are Christians because we don't live in any way that they would know. And that's Mordecai's life. There's no evidence that he is a follower of the scriptures and of Yahweh, the one true God, until he decides that I'm not going to stand up. I'm not going to bow down. I'm going to stand up. They say, why aren't you bowing down? And he says, because I'm a Jew. And this appears to be like a shocking revelation. And you go, why would he pick this moment? I mean, after all the times that he could have chosen to be true to his faith, after all the times he could have chosen to be true to God, why now? And Esther is one of those books, honestly, that doesn't resolve a lot of our questions. Some of these things just kind of hang out there. There's a couple different possibilities. One of them is that Mordecai knows that this is bad for the kingdom of Persia, that Haman have all this power. And Mordecai remembers the calling that God gave to him. He looked at this in week one from Jeremiah 29, where God commanded his people to seek the welfare of the city, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in the welfare of the city, he would find his welfare. And so he remembers, hey, I'm actually called to look out for this city, and this isn't good for this city, and so I'm going to stand up and say, no. Mordecai was actually pretty committed to the king. We learned just in the chapter before that as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's units, I'm going to pause right there. We're in week five in this series. I've made a mistake. We've got to find what a eunuch is. And a eunuch is someone who has been sterilized. That's probably the nicest way I can put it in church. But eunuchs are people that had been sterilized. They were incapable of sexual activity. And so because of that, they were put in charge of the harem and the wives of the king. I had a friend this, in this series who two weeks ago, I told what a eunuch was. And she said, I'm 45 years old. How do I not know what a eunuch is? I said, I don't know. But people probably don't know too. So I'm just going to make it awkward and tell them. And so, <laughs> so there's our awkward moment. So back to these eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, who guarded the threshold, they became angry and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. They're going to try to assassinate the king. But it says, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And so when the affair was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged in the gallows. So Mordecai is, is pretty committed to the king. He's even committed to defending the king. And so he maybe he says, this is bad for the kingdom, and so I won't bow down. Other people believe that there's some family history between Haman's people and the Jews, and because of that, Mordecai won't bow down. But regardless of why, he chooses this moment. And it's a reminder to all of us that we have an opportunity to awaken to who God is and what he's doing and to turn around. I mean, some of you have had moments in your life that there's really no reason why that was the moment, but you had a moment where you awakened to who God was and you realized you were going in the wrong direction and you turned around. There's a man in this church who was in the middle of a revolution in another country. And God used that crisis to awaken him to faith. There's a man in this church who was facing thoughts of suicide and a friend reached out to him and that was the moment that he awakened 
to who God was, and he turned and was invited into God's story. There's, there's a woman in this church who was in the middle of the worst season ever for her family. Loss after loss after loss. And that was the moment that she woke up and realized who God was and how much God loved her and who he created her to be. And God invited her into his story. You guys, if I stood you up right now, you could tell story after story after story after story about where you were when you were awakened to who God was. And you can step back and go, why was that the moment and not a thousand moments before that? I don't know. But I love that we worship a God who picks random, indiscriminate moments from our perspective to awaken us to who he is and to invite us into his story. And the story of Mordecai should give you hope that no matter where you are today, no matter how far compromised you are today, no matter how far you've gone off the path that God intended for you to walk, that this is a moment you could wake up. This is a moment you could step into his story. Mordecai, in the moment he has, he realizes that he has power. And what does he choose? He chooses courage. He chooses to stand up and say, no, I'm not going to bow down. No, I'm not going to continue to compromise. No, I'm going to claim who I am. I'm going to step into the story God has for me, and I'm going to allow God to use me. One little side note right here. This is not in your notes, and there's no screen for this. But we often forget how the Bible actually works. It works the exact same way as our lives. You have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, or in October, or in 2020. And guess what? This moment that Mordecai just has, he has no idea what's coming next. Now you have verse 5, 6, 7, and 8 in chapters 4, 5, and 6. You can read the rest of the story. And we often read the Bible and think, well, of course, he was courageous because he knew how it was going to work out. No, he didn't. In the same way, you have no idea how the moment you're going to stand in today is going to work out. God's faced you with opportunities and crises and choices. And you go, Scott, I have no idea how it's going to work out. And guess what? Nobody else in this book did either. Jesus was in the tomb and he was dead. And they had no idea he was going to rise from the dead. Moses was building the ark and he had no idea that a flood was going to come. Abraham stepped out and followed God to a place he had no idea where he was taking him. Moses went before the Pharaoh and had no idea if he was going to live or if he was going to die. And Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to bow down. And he had no idea what Haman was going to do. Being courageous means you have no idea what comes next and you still choose courage anyway. But we get to read what happens next in verse five. And in verse five, it says, when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down, or pay homage to him, he was filled with fury. He's hacked off. He's really mad. So he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. That's not enough to kill that one guy. So as they made known to him, these, these guards, who the people of Mordecai were, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. It's not enough to kill Mordecai. Haman wants to kill everybody. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus in verse 8, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws. So it's not in the king's profit to tolerate them. Why keep them around if they don't follow our laws? If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I, Haman, will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business 
that they may be put into the king's treasuries. 10,000 talents of silver in the modern day, we're talking billions and billions, possibly tens of billions of dollars. It's a massive sum. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money's given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems to good for you to do. Haman, it's on you. Do everything's best. Second takeaway from this passage is that it's dangerous to make exclusive claims in an inclusive world. It's dangerous to make exclusive claims in an inclusive world. When we first introduced Esther, we talked about how wide the Persian Empire was. And I've got a map on the screen for you. This is the Persian Empire. It goes all the way from modern-day Libya up into Greece through Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and into India. It's a massive empire. And if the diversity of those nations is causing conflict in our world today, the same thing was true then. And the only way to hold together this massive empire was to emphasize a secular polytheism. Nobody can worship their God as the only true God. You can have your God as long as you allow everyone else to have their gods and affirm that their gods are just as right as yours are. You can hold on to your religious traditions as long as yours don't violate anybody else's and as long as you play by all of our rules. But the worst thing in this kind of empire is a people who says, my God is the one true God and the ways we follow him, we're going to hold to no matter what. And that's what Haman says in verse 8. He says, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. This is the Persian way. Scatter a people across the empire so they can't be collected and have power and revolt. And Haman goes on and says, their laws are different from those of every other people. And they don't keep the king's laws. So why keep them around? Let's just kill them. All hundred thousand plus of them. Because they were practicing exclusive beliefs in an inclusive world. And that is not that different from our world today. We live in a time and a place where inclusiveness is one of the highest values in our culture. Now don't get me wrong, our faith is radically inclusive. You didn't have to become a speaker of Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew to read the Bible. You have to read it in English. You didn't have to wear Hebrew clothing to become a worshiper of God. Our faith is radically inclusive and it allows you to maintain your culture as you worship Jesus. But there are exclusive claims if you hold to the scriptures and you follow Jesus. Jesus says, I'm the only one who's come from the Father. In John 8, he says, I'm the only one who does everything to please God. He says, I'm the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Those are all exclusive claims. And in our culture, exclusive claims are often labeled bigoted, narrow-minded, arrogant, and mean. And if you're going to hold on to exclusive claims in an inclusive world, you may experience some level of danger. Now, do I think in the next five or ten years, we're going to have a Haman come to power who's going to wipe us all out? No. But you may experience some hate online. 
You may experience some animosity at work. You may experience some discomfort in your relationships, in your community, and you may find some people who pick labels for you that you don't like to have. That's what happens when you hold on to exclusive ideas in an inclusive world. And that's why we're in this series right now exploring how do we live faithful to Jesus while at the same time being winsome to our culture. And this is about what's about to happen to these Hebrew people as they hold on to their faith. All because of a guy named Haman. And I've been trying to imagine who is an equivalent of Haman, and I found one on Friday. Are you ready for it? It's this guy right here. It's Jafar. I love the movie Aladdin. My wife has every word memorized of the entire movie. But if you think about it, Jafar is the vizier in the land of Aladdin. And Haman is the vizier in the land of Xerxes. Haman absconds all this power for nefarious plans. And Jafar absconds all this power for nefarious plans. We see Xerxes and he's kind of like, yeah, Haman, do whatever you want. And remember the sultan? You know, in the movie Aladdin, he's kind of out to lunch. He's got no idea. Jafar, just do whatever you want. And Jafar develops these nefarious plans to kill and steal and destroy. And ultimately, he has to be opposed. So from now on, whenever you read the book of Esther, I don't want you to see Haman. I want you to see Jafar. I don't know if Haman had a little bird on his shoulder who talked to him and was kind of snarky. But you can imagine that too if you want to. See, Haman realized that he had power, and you know what he did? He chose ego. He chose that his ego couldn't handle somebody not bowing down to him. And most of us, if we had a problem like that, we would go, okay, how do I get that guy thrown in prison? Or how do I get him to lose his job? It wasn't even enough for Haman to say that guy has to die. Haman's ego and his pride was so huge, and his insecurity was so great that he said, no, I'm not going to just kill this guy, Mordecai. I'm going to bite his entire people. I'm going to kill them all. And you say, Scott, that's pretty extreme. Yeah. And when you're responding to power based upon your insecurity and your pride and your ego, you're capable of doing dangerous things too. You've probably been around somebody who responded to power with ego. You've probably borne the scars at points of that. Power doesn't make us bad people in the same way that getting money doesn't make you a bad person. No, it reveals it. We often say, man, they got so much money and they changed. No, they didn't. Money doesn't change people. Money reveals who people were all along. And power does the same thing. This is who Haman was. And he just got enough power for us to see it and recognize it. Okay, now we have to dive into the namesake of this book, Esther. And we're going to be like in the longest passage for today. So just kind of buckle up for a second. We're going to be in Esther for a minute. Beginning in Esther verse 1, chapter 4, this is what we read. So when Mordecai learned all that had been done, all these laws that they're going to kill everyone, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. This is often the normal habit of a Jew when something bad would happen. They would put on sackcloth, which is painful on the skin. They would throw ashes on themselves. They would weep and mourn publicly. This was a normal habit or tradition. And so Mordecai is continuing to awaken to and claim his identity. In verse 2 it says, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. 
And in every province, wherever the king's commands and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them were also in sackcloth and ashes as well. It seems they followed Mordecai's example. Now, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so he could take off the sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Down to verse 6. Hathak, who's one of the king's eunuchs, went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that happened and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Now Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree, written in Susa Susa, for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. They're going to play this game of telephone as we go on in the story. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's one law, to be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter to that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called to come into the king these 30 days. So the eunuchs go and tell Mordecai what Esther said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom... Famous line for the book, for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, hold a fast on my behalf, do not eat or drink for three days, night or day, I and my young women, who are not Jews, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Third takeaway. Trusting in God leads to vulnerability. Trusting in God leads to your best life now with a mansion and a yacht and a rolls and a vacation house. No. It leads to vulnerability. Now, vulnerability is a buzzword in 21st century America. And what that means is that people use it, but they have no idea what it means. We just repeat it enough to the point where we all assume we know what it means. So here's a great definition of vulnerability from Andy Crouch. Andy Crouch says that vulnerability is the capacity for meaningful risk. Translation, if there's no risk, you're not being vulnerable. If somebody says they're being vulnerable and there's nothing at stake, nothing to lose, they're not being vulnerable. He goes on. He says the vulnerability that leads to flourishing requires risk which is the possibility of the loss, the chance that when we act, we will lose something of value. So when you are vulnerable, you're putting something out there that you could lose, you're risking something. And that's what Esther is about to do. She's about to risk her life knowing that if the king doesn't extend the scepter to her, she could lose everything. And at first, she doesn't want to do it because she knows how vulnerable she would be. 
So she says to Mordecai, hey, I don't know if you remember the law, but this is what happens to people who do this. I can't do this. I haven't been called in in 30 days. And Mordecai turns to her through these servants and he says, if you keep silent this time, relief and deliverance will rise from another place. So God's going to take care of his people. God's going to use somebody else, but you and your father's house will perish. He's saying, if you want to be part of the lineage that goes back to Abraham, if in this moment you decide not to be vulnerable, that's dead. You're dead to us. You're dead to God. Because you chose to keep your power and use it on yourself and protect yourself. And then he goes, and who knows? We make this into this strong statement. Pastors preach this statement like, for such a time as this. I think it's a throwaway question from Mordecai. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe this is exactly what God was doing all along, that you've come into this kingdom for such a time as this. Because remember, Esther didn't get here the right way. She got here by compromising. She got here by winning a sex contest. She got here by compromising all along the way. And yet our God is a God who specializes in converting compromise into calling. Who takes the mess that we made and turns it into the message that we share with the world. And in this moment, Esther has an identity crisis. Is she going to be Esther whose name is associated with the Babylonian god of the stars? Or is she going to be Hadassah, the woman we met in chapter one, whose name means righteousness? Who's she going to be? Because if she chooses to not step out to the king, she's going to lose this part of her forever. It's gone. She's got enough power to protect herself. She's the queen. She's got guards and eunuchs. She can use her power to take care of herself. That's why when we trust in ourselves, it means that we reach for power. And when we trust in God, it means we embrace vulnerability. There's somebody in the room right now, you're in the middle of a situation right now, and you're tempted to reach for power because you're scared. And what that means is that you're tempted to trust in yourself and not trust in God. But when you're scared and you're exposed and you go, okay, what would it mean to trust in God? I'm just telling you that path is the path of vulnerability where you don't know how it's going to work out and something's on the line and you have to risk and you could lose something. Pretend for a minute you don't know how the story ends because she didn't. I promise you other people had gone to the king before and he'd not extended the scepter and she'd watched them die. Esther realizes that she has power and she chooses vulnerability. And it's a profound moment. And maybe it's because we're getting ready to celebrate, we celebrated the Lord's Supper earlier, but as soon as I read that passage this week, I instantly thought of Jesus. In John 13, we read, read about the very first Lord's Supper. And it says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus, knowing the Father, had given all things into his hands. Translation, knowing that he had all power. Jesus, knowing that he had all power. And that he'd come from God and was going back to God. He'd come from power and he was going back to power. What does he do when he realizes he's the most powerful person in the room? What does he do? He rises from supper, he lays aside his outer garments, he takes a towel, he ties it around his waist, 
and he pours water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. We follow a God who had all the power in the world and what did he do? He laid it down to serve. You and I, we are most like Jesus when we set aside our power in order to love and serve others. You want to be like Jesus? You want to be a follower of Jesus? You want to be a Christian, a little version of Jesus? Then whatever power you have, set it aside to love and serve others. Not to serve yourself, not to be the star of your own reality show and social media, but to love and serve others. Friends, this is the great temptation facing Christians in America today. Will we fight for our power to preserve ourselves or will we follow our God who sacrificed his power to love and serve others? You say, Scott, Christians are losing power in this country. I know. And the first followers of Jesus in the Roman Empire didn't fight for power. They followed the example of Jesus by loving and serving others and that's how they became the most dominant force in the most powerful empire on earth. Not because they held on to power, but because the world was shocked as they laid what power they had aside to love and serve others. The question today was this, what do you do when you realize you have power? The big answer, you use your power on behalf of those who have less or none. That's the answer. When you realize you have power, you don't spend it on yourself You don't preserve yourself. You don't feel your ego and your pride. You lay your power down in order to love and serve others. That's why the image of Jesus washing the disciples' feet has endured for 2,000 centuries, 2,000 years. Because it still shocks us that the most powerful man in the world would take the lowliest position of all. We are to follow his example. Let me give you some next steps before we go today. The first one is this. I want you to ask this question. Where is God awakening you? And what is he inviting you into? What is God doing in this season when it comes to stirring inside of you? What is it that God's doing and bringing you to life and awareness of? Where have you been sleeping and unaware and in a blind spot and God's awakening you like he was Mordecai, like he was Esther? And what is he inviting you into? Number two, I want to challenge you to embrace vulnerability instead of reaching for power. Embrace vulnerability instead of reaching for power. What that means is that when you're exposed and afraid, your first turn is how can I depend on God before I depend on myself? How can I look to him before I look to myself? And then three, Who does God want you to sacrifice for and serve in this season? Jesus took off all the signs of his power and position and he got down on his knees to wash feet. Who is he calling you to sacrifice and serve for in this season? I've got one story before we go. A week from Tuesday, I celebrate two years as the lead pastor of Cornerstone Church and it's been an awesome ride. And I'm really grateful for you. Thanks, but I, I didn't do it to get that. <laughs> but I appreciate it. When I came to preach in candidate, there were several of my friends who came up to be a part of that day with me. And one of those friends was this guy here. His name is Ken Pettis. And this is Ken and me the day that I got ordained. 
And uh, Ken and I met after Ken had left prison. And God had begun to use his mess to become his message, his compromise to become his calling. He was working with men who were in their first six months out of prison. And during that time, Ken began to bring some of those men to a service that I was leading. I had a chance to preach to them and minister with them, and it was an awesome time. During that time, we also realized that Ken had AIDS. And so this guy here, who, as Ken would say, was a little bit heavy, became this guy who came for my installation. Much different guy. But for years, when I would call Ken, I would get his voicemail because he was a really busy guy. And I remember a phrase he would say on his voicemail again and again and again. He'd say, hi, this is Ken. I'm, not, I'm busy. Leave me a message. Send me a text if you want to reply faster. And then before he was done, he said this phrase. And it has stuck with me to this day. The phrase he said in his voicemail that I think so perfectly speaks to the message of Esther and Mordecai is this. Remember, God's not in your story. You're in his We live in a culture that is trying to convince you that you are the star of your own story. And God is a bit character in your story. The story of Esther and Mordecai is a powerful reminder that God is not in our story. We are in his. And so no matter where you are today, no matter where you've compromised, no matter where you've gone, and no matter how far you're off the plan you thought you were going to be on or that God has for you, he is inviting you into his story today to be a part of what he's doing. And he wants to use you in this moment and in this season that is incredibly difficult for followers of Jesus to be faithful to Christ and winsome to culture. And he's given you power. And he's made you in certain places the most powerful person in the room. And as a part of his story, what are you going to do? Remember, he's not in your story. You're in his. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminders you've given us through these stories this summer of Daniel and Esther. We thank you for the connections that you've made in our hearts that they are not that different from us. They were in the middle of an incredible crisis of faith and security, that they were scared and uncertain in the same ways that many of us are living moments where we're scared and uncertain too. God, thank you for showing us the places where they're compromised and then bringing us to awareness of our blind spots and our compromises. God, you've given us all power. For some of us, it's just power over our own decisions and a couple things around us. For others, it's power over a lot of people and a lot of places. And God, we pray that we would honor you with what we do with that. God, we're never going to have more time in our life than we have right now. And there are unique opportunities that you've given us in this moment that aren't going to be here forever. There are expiration dates on those opportunities. So we pray that we would sense your spirit, that you would awaken us, that you would show us what you're calling us to do, and you would give us courage to be vulnerable and step out, not trusting in ourselves, but trusting in you, God. And we pray that you'd use us in powerful ways, not for our sake and our glory, but as a part of your story and for your glory. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.